Hi, I'm David Binning, Associate Editor with CIO. Welcome to the first episode of the CIO Show, where we will bring you candid and hopefully entertaining conversations with the leading industry voices and, of course, your peers to thrash out the key issues facing CIOs today. Now, our first episode is, in fact, a two-part program looking at artificial intelligence in Australia. It turned out way too big a topic to squeeze into one episode. And, in fact, we've interviewed no less than eight leading experts in this space, as well as CIOs, um, doing some very interesting things with AI in industries, including healthcare, mining, financial services, and the law. Now, it's obviously a very important emerging area with broad implications for business and society. Yet, as you'll discover in this episode and the next, AI is something that surprisingly few Australian organisations have a firm grasp of, um, with even fewer able to claim they have made a real commitment to understanding and deploying the technology. Now, early last year, Deloitte published the second edition of its State of AI report, which also scored the major developed economies, including Australia, on their readiness to capitalise on the technology. Now, somewhat worryingly, the upshot of the report was that compared to our developed peers, such as the US, UK, China, Germany, France and Canada, it seems we're not very ready at all when it comes to artificial intelligence. Now, for instance, Deloitte found that early adopters of AI in Australia were less ambitious about the potential impact of AI on their businesses, viewing it more as a means to catch up or keep on par, rather than widen the lead or leapfrog ahead. And Deloitte reported only 22% of Australian companies in the second group compared with 55% for China, 47% for Germany, 44 and 37% respectively for the UK and the US. Overall, Australia ranked seventh on this scale with Canada and France also ahead. Further, 41% of Australian respondents said their organisation either has no real AI strategy or only disparate departmental strategies compared with a global average of 30%. And to complete the poor scorecard, Australian companies were more worried about ethics and security while reporting relatively lower levels of preparedness to deal with them. Here with us on the CIO show is one of the authors of the report, Deloitte Australia's National Analytics Lead, Alan Marshall. Alan, welcome. Thanks, David. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, look, great to have you on the show. Look, so why is Australia so far behind on artificial intelligence? Well, I think from an organisational perspective, one of the key things for us to think about is that in embedding AI within our enterprises or within our organisations, which is the focus of our study, is... Uh, fundamentally a organisational um, change uh, problem as much as it is a technology problem. So I think we might come back to some of the um, the, the technology choices that um, enterprise uh, are facing with yeah. AI. But if we focus firstly on the organisational change, yes. really this is about organisations understanding how to adopt AI and how it may be somewhat different from adopting um, uh, other technologies um, into their organisation. Sure. So um, I guess the big difference with AI is it's the first time we've had to deal with a technology that could reason um, on our behalf. Uh Um, uh, So if we we take that as um, part of the underlying construct, humans are now having, or humans within organisations are now having to figure out a new relationship um, with, with technology. And I think before you can establish a relationship with any technology or any tool for that matter, um, you first have to understand it yes. um, and develop a level of um, understanding. So we, we talk a lot to our clients about uh, AI fluency. Mm. And so step one in any transformation program, um, particularly one that's trying to drive adoption of, of artificial intelligence, is to make sure 
the organisation has an understanding of or has some level of fluency with the capabilities of AI. So what is AI good at? Yeah. AI is not good at general um, task execution, but can get very good at executing specific tasks. Sure. And algorithms are honed and trained on data sets to um, execute a specific goal. Sure. And so that's really the starting point is to try and develop fluency across organisations so that the forming of relationships within within organisations can start to drive adoption. So it's, it's interesting your choice of words, fluency, that almost implies a, an intuitive understanding of, of the technology. Yeah, I think it's just about helping uh, our clients uh, in terms of the work that we do just recognise a, a business problem that AI could help with. So we're not necessarily suggesting that um, you know business um, stakeholders in, in in an organization need to be able to understand how to code um, uh, but certainly being understand uh, being able to understand well what types of problems is um, AI good at um, uh, and then um, recognizing that and then being able to bring in um, teams across their business that can help um, drive um, new solutions and I think those solutions are um, increasingly not just thinking about efficiency. So how could we drive efficiency gains through our process, but really asking questions of effectiveness. Is there a new way um, that we could tackle this problem um, with some of the capability that um, um, artificial uh, intelligence technology is offering? Sure. Now, we, we, we've heard and read a lot about the importance of getting the data right, or to put it another yep. way, AI systems are really only as good as the as the data that's put into them. Um, yep. Talk me talk me through a little bit of your your experiences and your insights around that particular aspect of AI, crucial aspect of AI. Yeah, I think the way that we kind of break down um, uh, AI is is um, you know it's a data plus algorithm. Um, so if if an if an organisation hasn't been on a journey to be able to manage its data well, it's going to find enterprise AI quite difficult so delivering one or two use cases um, you know that 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 is certainly feasible but trying to compete on AI or drive a large-scale transformation with AI without a really strong data management capability Mm. um, is going to be quite difficult so first first the first thing is we need data to train AI train algorithm Um, and then the second thing is once we're looking to operationalize something that has been either built or developed on third-party products, we're going to have to pump data through it. Sure. So if you can't manage data across your organisation um, and ensure that the data has a reasonable level of quality, um, then you know, competing and, and being able to rely on artificial intelligence within your organisation is going to be difficult. And it's it seems as though it's, um, I mean, you, as you touched on at the beginning of the conversation, very different to other sorts of technology projects and that is another word that we that we encounter a lot in reading about talking about AI is this this concept of the ecosystem yeah yeah well, what's what, what's your take on that yeah I think the the first thing to consider I think when uh, implementing AI is that it is a it's not it's not going to follow a traditional process of let's get our requirements in place yeah let's go through a design process, build tests, and then roll out. It's, it's almost an entirely different playbook, isn't it? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think you're right. I think it's about a – it comes back to that idea of that relationship that we're trying to build. Mm. So there's a there's a, a need to train 
uh, iteratively the algorithm to execute the task or decision that we're wanting it to execute. But equally, the um, business users who are going to be relying on that um, algorithm to or that, that AI to execute task or decision mm-hmm. are going to want to have confidence that it's going to be able to do that in the right way. Yeah. So there's an iterative process to work through with with the humans interacting and supporting the development um, of the technical solution. Yeah. But then it's, you know, we've kind of covered this a little bit off as well with the, with the data discussion. The algorithm itself is dependent on a capability that sits around it that can feed uh, the algorithm with the right data going forward, which is, I guess, one half of the equation. The second half of the equation is what action are we going to take? So is the algorithm field, uh, feeding a human with um, insight or, or, or a recommended um, action to take, or are we looking to automate the execution of um, that insight or recommendation? Sure. And therefore, we need a whole stack of other um, uh, technology capabilities that sits around it to enable that automated system uh, to emerge. And what, what do you think are some of the key areas where AI could be applied for... Um you know, to improve efficiencies, to drive competitive advantage in Australia? Yeah, so I think it's highly useful to break it up into, um, you know, uh, front office or front of house, for perhaps a, for a better word, um, and then um, back of house. So in back of house, if we think about all of the traditional areas where we do a lot of processing work, um, whether it's in, you know, um, your finance areas, HR areas, large-scale processing um, functions that are processing customer queries, for example, sure. or onboarding new customers into organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, those processes, I think, um, have high potential to be augmented with um, artificial intelligence capability, which will definitely increase the efficiency um, and hopefully the effectiveness um, of those outcomes within organisations. Sure. If we switch to front of house, I think there's a spectrum from Organisations that are um, you know, purely focused on customers, um, and then how AI provides new opportunities to provide customer service or interact with customers or sell products to customers um, or build new products for that matter, um, uh, and also then organisations that have an asset base as well. So, um, and there's organisations that have both, both assets and customers, of course. But organisations with an asset base are then entering into a world of you know, digital twins, and they're starting to um, build a representation of their physical assets in the digital landscape. Mm-hmm. That's all data-driven, and then once we've got that data, that opens up a whole stack of exciting use cases um, that we can apply artificial intelligence to to optimise outcomes, whether it's in maintenance activity or day of operation um, or responding to disruptions in their supply chain. On, on that topic of digital twins this is an interesting term can you help our audience or rather me um, better understand what exactly that means in the context of AI yeah it's, it's, it's I think it's probably one of those hyped up terms um, <laughs> I'm sure it's not seeing, as simple as it sounds <laughs> <laughs> that we're seeing emerge uh, yeah. in, in the marketplace but the, the way that I like to think about it is the digital twin is the glue um, between the physical world mm-hmm. and the digital world right and, and then in, in terms of the components, so obviously when we're talking about a physical asset, um, we are very easily now able to add sensors 
um, into those assets. Some assets have always had sensors on them, but when we, we can add a heap more um, relatively cost efficiently um, than we ever have been able to um, before. And then of course, once we've got sensors, we can pull the data off those sensors mm -hmm. into a digital representation of the asset, hence the digital twin. Right. So it's a, it's a virtual model of um, the physical asset so we can see that in the digital world. We can understand not only how it's been set up, but we can also understand how it's performing. Sure. Um, and the ultimate um, uh, goal being that once we've got that data, we can see how the asset is performing. We can then start to um, we can start to optimize um, using um, higher order algorithms to sure. help us with optimization. Now I understand Deloitte. Um, you were telling me that Deloitte was working with some clients in applying AI to help manage disruption to operations as a result of COVID-19. How's all that going? Yeah, so look, I think there's been a, um, a lot of effort put into um, the response phase of COVID-19. Mm. So um, we've been working with clients on um, helping them um, so we've, 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 we've developed a bit of an archetype in terms of the cycle we think our clients and, and us for that matter will move through in terms of responding to the crisis, starting to recover and then moving into a, a thrive phase uh, post-crisis. Yeah. Um, the work we've been doing in the response phase has been very much um, short-term orientated in terms of helping clients understand um, you know, how to best respond given their circumstances. I think it, it has highlighted as well, um, you know, the, the, one of the topics we've already covered around the need for really strong data management capability. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's also highlighted some opportunities in terms of um, um, automation, perhaps within the workforce as well. So, right. you know, where there were, um, you know, previously, you know, humans in the loop or physical requirements of humans being in certain places to execute uh, business process. Or business activity or work, um, um, you know, and that has been compromised with COVID. Um, it's opened up some discussions around, you know, where could we use digitised workforce mm. um, or augment human work with digital capability to reduce some of those constraints. So some really interesting conversations emerging. I think for most it'll be a period of getting through to um, the other side and then starting to perhaps do a bit of a debrief and look at lessons learned sure. through the crisis and, yeah. and, and understand what we could be doing differently um, uh, as we move from recovering to thrive. I imagine there'll probably be um, a lot more on that in your the upcoming third edition of the State of Deloitte State of AI report. Can you give us any sort of sneak peek hints as to what we might expect to see in that? Yes. Um, <laughs> so, the yeah, that in a, in, a, in a couple of weeks, um, and it's you know, continuing on. Um, not, not, not so much re-emphasising the view of um, uh, where countries are at, but continuing to look at um, how AI has been adopted um, within enterprise. And I guess the, the main thought is that we're really seeing um, um, adopters of AI um, uh, believe that it is key to their future market leadership. So sure. some of the things that, that are coming out um, are looking at how uh, creative approaches being applied to drive adoption within organisations. So new products that are being powered by 
um, AI, moving AI beyond um, the the IT department into the business landscape to 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 take it beyond just a process efficiency conversation. Into yes, a, it's an interesting about before. trend. That yeah, yeah, that that more you know effectiveness view of the world. Um, yeah, constantly starting to think through how to consume um, AI as well, and this idea of buy versus build. Um, buy being something that you're you're purchasing from a third party, build being something that you're constructing um, uh, custom for your own needs. And the trade-offs in those decision points around um, where the IP ownership lies. Sure. And obviously, um, IP ownership um, for something that you've custom built provides a much stronger um, competitive advantage position um, uh, for, for organisations um, if they choose to go down that, that, that path. Indeed. And then... The, and the third one is, is really around, you know, that continuing discussion around risks. Um, you know, again, one of the things that our AI Institute is, is pushing forward is um, uh, um, some research around trustworthy AI. How can you drive adoption with appropriate risks being managed? Um, sure. Continues to be a key thing. Well, it sounds like it's going to be fascinating. We look forward to seeing the report, Alan. And thanks very much for joining us on the CIO Show. We look forward to having you back soon. Great. Love to. Thanks, David. All the best. Appreciate it. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Now, when people think about mining, they tend to think about big things, big trucks, big holes in the ground, huge volumes of material. But really, it's an industry that relies on quite minute precision when you get down to it. In the gold industry, for instance, you may not be aware that for each tonne of ore that's mined, you're really only getting a few grams of the precious metal. Now, Gavin Wood is CIO with Australian Australia's Newcrest Mining, one of the world's largest gold producers. Gavin, welcome to the CIO Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Fantastic. Look, since you joined the company about six years ago, you've overseen a fairly significant digital transformation with data science and AI playing a fairly central role to that. And I'm especially interested in your application of so-called machine vision. Can you tell me a little bit about what that technology is and how Newcrest is using it? Uh, yes, machine vision is uh, uh, an artificial intelligence uh, capability. Uh, and we use it in a, in a, in a variety of different uh, places. Um, one of the places we use is on the mobile phones. Um, we've uh, created a, an app called um, uh, Fix, Fix It uh, that uses the camera on the phone to recognise what the asset is mm. and then is able to automatically generate um, a preventative maintenance uh, task inside SAP for our, our asset maintenance uh, operators and workers and technicians to be able to... Uh, Take that, take, take that action to make sure that we don't have any unplanned downtime. We also use it um, in other areas, for example, uh, above the conveyors that take the ore from the mine um, to the mill mm. uh, to be processed. We have high-definition cameras that take photos every 15 seconds and we use machine vision to identify um, the characteristics of the ore that's being processed, like how hard it is, um, and different types of content so that we're able to make adjustments to how the mill is set up mm. uh, so that we can actually be op optimised for the way that was, way the ore needs to be processed. So you, you genuinely are mining for digital gold, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, well, we, we see the opportunity uh, to apply digital to our business to drive improvement. It's been quite significant. Um, if we can use uh, the, the insights of uh, our data, whether that's... Um, visual data like a photo or a video or um, data that comes off sensors and instrumentation uh, to reduce variability. And variability for us is the difference between our average day or our P50 day mm -hmm. and our best day, which is a, 
a P10 or a, um, a probability 10 outcome. Yeah. Uh, if we can reduce that that gap, that's going to uh, uh, mean that we'll get more throughput, and more throughput means we're processing more ore, uh, and in processing more ore, we'll produce more gold, and ultimately that means more cash. Sure. Um, now you you we, we spoke recently about the sort of the relatively small amounts of money that you know one can spend on on AI projects. Um, and effective AI projects, and and you know if if done well, you know potentially recoup millions of dollars in value. I mean that's something that you've sort of had personal experience of, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, we found that um, pieces of data science that could cost in the tens of thousands or low hundreds of thousands of dollars can deliver millions of dollars of benefit. Yeah. Um, we uh, and we've put a lot of work into setting up our big data platforms and our data science platforms that host the models mm. to allow for third parties to work with us fairly seamlessly yeah. where we can engage them for those those um, data science projects uh, and, and deliver those benefits. And um, we're seeing those benefits in, um, in weeks and months, not years. So it's um, uh, a very fast time to value. That's amazing. I mean, look, and someone someone that's sort of been, you know, at, at the coalface of, of um of technology management, making you know serious purchase decisions for serious organisations. Um, what's sort of been your experience of um, of working with vendors in in the AI space? So I suppose I suppose virtually all vendors claim to now be in sort of some sort of area of, of digital AI or data science, don't they? But you know, what's what's sort of been your experience of um, um, you know trying to separate the real from the from the pretenders? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be very mindful that um, if you can't attach your brand as a supplier to digital or cyber security mm. at the moment, you're probably not making making money. Yeah. So everyone's trying to play that angle, which creates for a very noisy um, set of messages that you've got to navigate your, your way through. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot of promises of what people can deliver. Um, so we can we focus uh, on having some good partnerships with SAP and Microsoft, particularly, and IBM yeah. uh, around making use of their technology and platforms. But we tend to use um, uh, more the boutique end of the market um, with companies like uh, Insight and Microsoft uh, Systems Integrator, mm-hmm. uh, Versa, um, a data science and digital company. And also lots of um, Israeli companies we make use of, such as uh, Razor Labs and the Data Science Group. Because sure. um, we find the boutique end of the market have the talent to deliver the outcomes for us. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly the model that's working for us. And you've also got this partnership with Sydney University. This is with this Data Analytics for Resources and Environment, the DARE program. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yes, uh, that's um, a very in- <clears throat> a very interesting project where. Um, we use data science to make predictions. So you might say that um, you are <clears throat> 95% certain that this outcome is going to occur. Um, and the DEV um, project is about looking at the, un- the quantifying the impact of uncertainty. Yes. So if you could quantify the meaning of the remaining 5% of that prediction, would it change the course of action you're going to take? Right. So it's, it's, a, it's looking at data science in a different way. So it is a very interesting when it's, it's it's it seems it seems a fairly ambitious undertaking quantifying uncertainty in data science. I mean, it's sort of data science has a lot of uncertainty in, inherent to it, I suppose. 
Uh, it's true, but um, I think data science at its heart is, uh, is statistics over very large number uh, um, of uh, numbers and data. Mm. Um, so just un- understanding the, 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 the other side of the case, um, it, it is in theory possible. Mm. So, uh, and it's also at, um, people have been looking in their approach to data science is how can I make a prediction with a reasonable level of certainty? So, you know, for example, if you're 75% certain that this is going to occur, would you still take the action anyway, regardless if you're wrong 25% of the time? Right. Um, but if you understood what's happening in that 25%, would that change your um, point of view? And it's just about um, effectively um, setting up the models so that uh, you can have an understanding of that. Right. So we're, we're, what sort of... Um What's the outlook for you know the, the data science and AI um, activities at Newcrest over the next sort of couple of years? I, mean, I imagine it's you, you, you anticipate AI uh, featuring probably more prominently um, you know in the overall scheme of things on the, on the technology side at Newcrest. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, it would. I mean, we see um, uh, at each of our sites having uh, an in, uh, increasingly having a inter, uh, uh, a detailed set of Data models that cover different aspects of the operations of the site mm. that are pulled together in a um, uh, an end-to-end value chain model that has a sort of theory of constraints being applied to it, uh, and using those insights to drive improvements and automations and uh, make out and, and make make our sites inherently safer for the people who work there. Of course, some safety is such a critical thing, critical consideration mm, in, in the in the mining sector. Um, what are some of the other examples of how you've been applying data science to that particular uh, aspect of your operations? Um, sorry, pardon me. I'm losing my voice. I've been talking too much of late. Um, the, uh, so have I. Um, <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, uh, other, you know, we're, we're looking at applying um, data science um, in, in different safety use cases as well. You know, for example, we were talking about machine vision earlier. Mm. Um, in our warehouses, um, so you imagine um, we need a, um, a lot of uh, parts and equipment and consumables available at our sites because many of them are in remote places. Um, we're using the vision that comes off the CCTV to uh, identify where there's um, potential safety hazards occurring or if um, people are working outside the parameters that we'd like to and, and alarming and providing an alarming kind of feature uh, for other people there to take take the right act, corrective action so they stay safe. And that's interesting. Um, so it, yeah. yeah, there's lots. I mean, there is lots of uh, lots of different use cases um, we can apply AI and data science to, and um, uh, whether that's uh, <clears throat> geology helping us target our exploration efforts um, uh, to where we're going to have the most success um, and uh, right through to um, uh, how we ship our concentrates um, as a byproduct of processing. We, um, in some of our minds, we create a copper concentrate that's gold rich yeah. uh, to working out how we get that to the port and ship it um, in the most effective way as well. Yeah, well, I, I suppose just like, you know, the company's traditionally been dealing with enormous volumes of physical material, now you're dealing with enormous volumes of data um sounds like you've got your work cut out for you but that things are going great and I, I wish you all the best for the future and thanks so much for joining us on this on the cio show and we look forward to having you back soon oh it's a pleasure and uh, thanks for having me and, and it is an exciting future we're very excited about newcrest and the application of technology to how we could improve our business well fantastic all the best with it thank you
AI and data science is done best by small, agile teams, be they win within what he describes as boutique tech firms or universities such as Sydney, with which the miner is working on models to predict uncertainty in data science. Down the road at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS, there's a veritable hive of, of AI activity across promising little startups to projects servicing large enterprises and government agencies. Joining us to talk about that is Professor Michael Blumenstein, Associate Dean at the UTS Faculty of Engineering and IT. Michael, welcome to the CIO Show. Hi, it's good to be on. Thanks. Fantastic. Now tell me, what are you, your AI and data science people up to over there at UTS at the moment? Well, we're very fortunate. We've got so much activity happening at the moment for in, with industry collaboration and uh, working with SMEs and mm. you know and and also more recently with government. So some of the things we've been we've been successful with um, this year. Um, one of our teams, um, who some some of your listeners may have heard of, is is the the, the work we do with um, the Ripper Group in the area of shark spotting. Oh, of course, with yes. our with our um, uh, drones that yes. actually survey our our beaches and coastlines, over fifty beaches, um, using video based AI technology to spot the sharks. And um, and actually this year we um, we actually won an award for for that uh, for that work through through the um, uh, Australian Unmanned uh, Association. Well, congratulations! Uh, for, thanks. Yes. Uh, we didn't have a gala dinner, unfortunately, but, uh, no. but we got the we actually got the award for for most uh, important research innovation um, for the work we did. Not only spotting sharks, but also we've done some crocodile uh, spotting work called Croc Spotter um, in oh, northern Queensland. Of course, so. Yes. So we're very fortunate um, we're able to work with this company using, you know, our experts in, in AI and, and video image processing now, to actually does, have a real system. How does there. this shark spotting work? So basically, it's we, we, we've actually got drones that our partner, uh, the Ripper Group, um, has customized, and we actually uh, deploy the software onto their hardware. Mm. So the software is actually custom written by us, and um, we train an AI system on on hours of, of video footage showing, um, you know, beaches and, and water areas and water scenarios. And um, we train it to be able to distinguish between 15 different types of marine uh, animals in the sea and, and also in, in, in river systems. And so what that ends up with is a, is a system that's intelligent that can actually detect um, sharks and other animals from uh, from a UAV at any um, location, That's so it, it's 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 fast, it's accurate, over ninety three percent accuracy. Um, uh, when you compare it to people who fly with helicopters and binoculars, their their accuracy with a human accuracy is under twenty percent. So is that so right? actually developed That's some technology. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it blows you away when you realize that traditional methods mm. um, are very expensive, but they're also inaccurate. So what we've got is a non-invasive uh, way of really using AI for the public good. Indeed, and and how much how long did it take to develop? I mean, what was what was sort of involved? Well, because we um, we've got a team here that a lot of the teams that work on AI projects at UTS. We, we were the, the teams of expertise in doing work um, with industry for for a long period of time, and mm. and and basically we we've had expertise in using um, video cameras to say uh, analyze beach activity, even looking at rips um, in 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 beaches and in, in the water. Um, so we've because of the expertise we built up over many decades, it actually took a really short amount of time, about 
Now, it, the whole process from start to finish was about two years. Right. Um, but really, we already had a prototype happening, you know, after the first year. So, you know, normally to develop this brand new technology was really the first, um, uh, you know, group in, in, in the world to have shark spotting drones basically functioning. Yeah. And, you know, usually to get, you know, your world's first technology out there, it takes years of development. But if you've got research capabilities internal inside your organization that's been working on similar problems, right. you can actually quickly accelerate um, and, and get a really a quality product out there in a pretty quick uh, period of time. I mean, that does that does seem remarkably quick to develop what you what you have developed. Now, you, you're also working um, with uh, large enterprises and, and government agencies. Financial services is an area that you've been working in, isn't it? Yeah. Look, the the financial services space is huge for right. us. I mean, we found that um, you know whether it's banks, insurance companies, or um, you know other wealth investment firms. What they need is something that's custom. You know, it's not something they can find off the shelf. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we partnered with a company uh, called OnePath, yes. um, which is basically an insurance company, and and they they were looking for a way in which we could we could they could make their insurance experience for their customers more intuitive, and so giving a, 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 their clients a policy, um, you know, in real time without you know taking. Uh, you know, hundreds of questions or, or, you know, checks. And what we did was we basically created a new underwriting system for them, mm-hmm. um, which which used AI and data science to to actually determine what were the most important questions to ask a customer to get the fastest completion of their personal statement. And it increased um, their ability to do that, this is a customer, by 30%. And the, the response in terms of how, how fast it is to get the underwriting and the insurance uh, claim in uh, is 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 accelerated to the point where the customer's satisfaction has increased significantly. Sure. So so this was a custom system that we developed in house with AI technology and data science technology for a large uh, firm, which you know OnePass now is actually uh, part of the Zurich Group, which is one of the largest insurers in the world. So so we're very um, excited about being able to deliver that quality type of AI product for them. That's amazing. Now, as someone who's spent a lot of time developing bespoke solutions using data science and AI, I imagine you struggle to get your head around this idea of off-the-shelf AI. I must admit, so do I. (laughs) Yeah, look, I think off-the-shelf AI is something that I think a lot of uh, particularly vendors and companies would like everyone to, to think, you know, is something that's, you know, the holy grail of of um, what can be uh, produced for consumption by mm. by other companies. The problem is, off the shelf is never completely uncustomized. You know, it's impossible for any company to just say, "Oh, I'm going to go to this vendor or that vendor and say I'm going to buy their system and I'm just going to plug it into mine, and it's just going to generate this extra, you know, productivity or or a gain in in processes or or new features." Um, AI always has to be customized and um, and it sometimes takes more money to, for a company to customize the solution than actually buying the thing off the shelf. And of course, what's really good for the people selling the AI technology uh, that they've created in, in, how, in their company uh, as a vendor is that they get to you know reap the benefits of selling the product uh, which needs to be maintained over a long period of time but also uh, they, they reap the benefits of having the uh, customer 
put in a lot of cash in customizing the technology for their organization. Mm. I mean, that, that's, that must be creating a lot of um, a confusion and, um, and even discontent <laughs> in, the, in, in the wider market out there, do you not think? Oh, look, for sure. I think, as we know, AI is such a buzzword, mm. so much hype at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, there are people who are looking at AI as, as the, um, you know, the fix for any major problem that comes our way. I mean, people, you know, they talk about data being the new oil and, and you know, let's harness the data, let's uh, use AI to, to help us become a more automated, intelligent company. Mm. But what's what's interesting is that um, you know if if you have that desire to do that, it's a really complex um, uh, process to to actually uh, ensure that you've got the best AI solution that's working for you. Mm. Because if if you're um, if you're expecting to buy something that is ready to go, it's it's never the case. Mm. And to be honest, I I believe that, um, and this is anecdotal, is that a lot of uh, companies that go for AI products will actually go through a number of different products until they hit their, their holy grail. The problem is that that's expensive and, uh, and it might also take a long time. So, yeah. so my view is that, you know, um, to avoid the confusion, whoever's doing the process in the organization for procuring this AI should do their homework very carefully yeah. about what's on offer and how it fits within their organization. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we've, and you and I have discussed in the past that that something um, it's something of an anomaly in the AI space that where we're seeing more and more CIOs report some even complaining perhaps that um, that their managers, CEOs, and the board are um, are putting pressure on them to expedite their you know rolling out of AI. Um, often it's, it's it would appear that um, this is happening often in environments where there's very little understanding of um, of the technology, and yet um, these many of these CEOs are presumably uh, attracted to off-the-shelf products because they've been, you know, they're under pressure and they've got limited time. And then, as you say, buying these off-the-shelf products can actually um, create a vastly more expensive and complex uh, scenario than they might have been facing had they bitten the bullet and tried to build something themselves. Yeah, look, absolutely. There's so many ways you can skin that cat. I yeah. mean. If you so that yeah, I I didn't mention the 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 option you suggested there, which is the in-house development of AI. I mean that's that's your third option. I mean I I, I see I see things in a, in a number of ways. You can buy off the shelf. Uh, you can if you've got a big enough team in inside the organisation, you can you can sort of develop it yourself if possible. Um, but as I said, there's the option you know which which we provide um, as a university, which where we bring um, you know custom products which are not only um, you know new to market they're new to world you yeah. know so the latter is actually the option which is not only customized but it's also bringing you the absolute cutting-edge technology that's coming out of a research lab yeah. which which is which is a decade away from any vendor that yeah. is selling anything um, because I think I think we've spoken in the past about the fact that these days the big companies um, are actually now starting to believe it or not publish papers with universities because they know they're developing technology in-house or, or they're developing products for selling to organizations, but actually where the real genius lies is inside these research organizations such as universities, which are way ahead of the curve. Yeah. So so what what's happening is that, you know, you're saying that, that you know, the CEOs 
and the boards are pressuring the CIOs, absolutely, because the boards and CEOs see a different picture of what AI is. They're looking at it, um, you know, I hazard to say this, it's terrible to say this, but believe it or not, the public consumption of where AI is, is unfortunately from movies, it's from hype on, uh, you know, on on hyped up, uh, you know, articles in the press. Yes. Um, A lot of that is where they're getting their information from, unfortunately. Yeah. It's not from tangible, and of course they get exposed a lot, probably from vendors knocking on their door. Um, but but the reality is that um, trying to do it quickly is fraught with danger because if you want an off-the-shelf solution, you say quick, quick, quick. Let's you know, I know I trust that vendor, or I trust that big company. Let's get them to deliver something quickly. Yeah. If you want something done quickly um, and well, I would argue that's going to be very difficult. Rather, you know, do the homework, get a better understanding of what's the best for you. Is it, uh, you know, getting it off the shelf? Is it, uh, or buying it from a vendor? Is it developing in-house? Or is it looking at a boutique option, you know, like a university, for example? So it, it, there is that pressure. And I, my, my advice would be don't succumb to the pressure. AI is still evolving. Yeah. It's still going to be around. And you don't want AI to be detrimental to your business. What you want it to be is to be working for your business and automating your processes for for the better of the organization. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, it's you know, whether we like it or not, whether whether a lot of people, even you know, some very respected and intelligent people, would care to admit it. Um, people are getting you know much of their their understanding, much of their perceptions about AI from from um, fiction or science fiction, and and we're certainly seeing. Um, you know the 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 more negative um, results of that in this conversation around ethics, and you've 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 indicated in the past certainly that um, that this discussion around around ethics and AI is becoming uh, almost shrill, even going so far as to suggest that it might be slowing innovation in AI. Oh, look, uh, you you. You don't even have to get me started on this topic. I, I'm very passionate <laughs> I, I about this part. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, 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 it, it worries me a little bit. I mean, I fully am supportive of what you want to call ethical and uh, some people are calling it transparent AI, mm-hmm. non-biased AI, uh, preser- preservation of privacy, maintaining data integrity. I mean, I, I agree with all that. Yep. The problem is that the argument around an ethical AI it is literally what you're saying, swallowing up the passion for innovation. Yeah. You know, um, we've got um, everything from the federal government um, talking about, you know, roadmaps and frameworks um, that are really focused on, you know, delivering AI principles um, when we haven't even got a really great AI ecosystem yet in, in our country. No, we don't. Um, if, no. In Australia, if we could harness the intellectual capacity, we've, you know, the, the rankings show that we have the largest intellectual capacity of AI experts per capita in the world. Was oh, that right? Research capability, yes. Well, you, heard it, of, you heard it here first on the CIO show, folks, yes. In terms of <laughs> um, publications which are generated by researchers, and mm. these are the same publications mm. that the big companies are trying to co-publish with us with, mm. we've got the largest concentration of research capability, which is practical, not just in, 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 a, in a textbook, this is practical research capability. We've got the highest concentration of that intellectual capacity per capita in the world. Now, if we've got that, we should harness that and take and build the biggest and, and best industry that can produce the most cutting edge AI 
that will be competitive across the globe. Indeed. Now, unfortunately, this, this conversation around AI and ethics, although very important, is sometimes distracting us from the fact that economically we could lead the world in producing the best AI software, for yeah. example, yeah. Um, by devoting more time and actually putting in effort to try and build our, our capacity for translating our research into the industry and growing our industry. You know, I think software is probably one of those things where you don't need a, sh a ship to physically ship over. You don't need a plane. You don't need to, you can just send it down a, the internet and, and people can purchase it. You know, it can be, it can be purchased, it can be licensed. Um, it, so so we, we should really be focusing on growing our economic advantage and capabilities in AI. And uh, the AI and ethics should be considered in the context of growing our, our capacity first, you know, before uh, stifling the conversation of growing our capabilities. I, I think that's an absolutely fantastic point. Michael, look, thanks so much for, um, for joining us on the program and we look forward to welcoming you, welcoming you back again soon. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Uh, earlier we heard Deloitte's Alan Marshall explain how Australian organisations need to develop greater fluency around AI in order to develop a more intuitive understanding of what the technology actually is and therefore how best to develop and apply, us and apply it. Um, also joining us on the show is Gary Adler, Chief Digital Officer with global law firm Minter Ellison. Gary, welcome. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me today. No, great, great, great to have you. Thanks for thanks for making time. Would you uh, agree that AI hasn't quite lived up to its potential yet in Australia? Yeah. Look, I think in in some areas, um, I think in other areas there has been there has been uh, a good uptake. Uh, I think one thing that's clear is is there has been hype for for many years, um, and and it certainly hasn't met, it lived up to 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 everything it's claimed to be. Uh, but I think some of those smaller use cases um, where there is a genuine off-the-shelf product um, in, in some areas, and, and legal is, is specifically one of those areas, um, we, we've seen quite a major uptake, and not just in our firm, but you know across the industry. Oh, indeed. So, yes, as you say, there's, there's certainly been some powerful applications in the legal profession. I mean, um, you know, we're, many of us are aware of... of um, you know, the enormous sort of workload that many lawyers have, particularly in processing you know, vast quantities of documents. Talk me through some of the, um, the applications that you've been working on to, to tackle that problem. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think firstly, it's, it's almost a bit surprising that, that, that uh, AI has found a big play in legal because it is a very traditional sector. It seems a dichotomy when you put the two together. Um, but when you actually Indeed. stop to think about what happens in law firms, very document heavy, very document heavy. Uh, as an example, Mintrelison, we have at least 100 million documents and growing exponentially in our enterprise content management system. And that's just crazy. Isn't a, it? <laughs> it, it, it's crazy, yeah. right? So that, that, that speaks to major opportunities. Mm. Um, when you think about these documents, there's a lot of repetition in the documents, and then it starts lending itself to that particular part of AI machine learning. Um, to this end, you know, what we've seen in the industry, as I mentioned a bit earlier, is out of sort of over the last couple of years, there's been many, many um, legal specific AI applications now available off the mm. shelf, which are focused specifically on working through documents, identifying patterns and clauses mm. uh, to speed up the efficiency in the review. Um, 
and again, on your point about, you know, I guess Australia versus the rest of the world, when we look at the applications that we've invested in, all of them have come from outside of Australia. Right. Uh, there are a few in Australia, um, but certainly US, UK, even a couple of great ones out of New Zealand, that, that's where we, we, we're seeing it. And what's, um, what, what sort of companies have you been working with? On, so on we our, are working... Yeah. Yeah, we, we're working with a company called Raven, uh, which is uh, an iManage company, and Raven is, is out of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with Luminance, uh, which is also out of the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, out, of, out of New Zealand, uh, we're working with um, a company called McCarthy Finch, oh. a great startup that's, that's come out of, out of, uh, out of that country uh, and is starting to really great, great good traction in the US, sure. uh, but, but, also, but also here in Australia. Now, I, I understand that you've been working with um, a number of financial services companies uh, in Australia. Can you tell me a little bit about what sort of solutions you've been, you know, what sort of AI solutions you've been developing for some of them? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think w- w- the, the starting place is, is, is always looking for business efficiency and, and over and above that, there's also the opportunity to sort of reduce the risk mm. in the legal service delivery um, to those types of clients. Um, and if, if I think about one particular financial services client that we're working with, <clears throat> um, they are going through a large financial uh, services remediation mm. uh, with their brokers and the broker's customers. And there are literally tens of thousands of documents. Some of them are handwritten, uh, some are formal documents, uh, some might be uh, voice-to-text uh, type documents. And there is key information inside of those documents that relate to how the remediation outcomes might uh, come into play. Mm-hmm. And so I guess rather than um, um, lawyers, many, many lawyers, armies of lawyers going through these documents manually, We've trained a machine to go and look through this data and triage the key data as, as it sort of discovers um, what's, what's most relevant and push this up to the surface. So there's still a, a human element. Yes. You know, the human element is actually reviewing the outcomes, making sure they are indeed relevant and nothing's been missed. But the majority of that grant work is now being done by machine. So significant savings. Um, and I think we saw with one particular use case around 37% uh, time saved. So it's a really good story for our clients. It's a really good story internally because it empowers our lawyers to focus on things that matter more rather than getting stuck, you know, in the more the, the, the detailed and, and repetitive work. Sure. And, and um, not that this is necessarily a great thing for law firms, but certainly for clients, this means um, somewhat cheaper uh, legal bills, which might be a positive thing. <laughs> Correct. Correct. It, 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 is, it is a genuine win-win. And yeah. we work with our clients to, to ensure it's a value-based pricing model yeah. in these instances. Yeah. Now, something I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, obviously working in the legal profession, you'd be acutely aware of, of the various discussions around ethics in, in AI. Um, no, well, doubt, no doubt a vexing problem. Um, some people, of course, think it's a little bit overblown. But in, in your view, where are we at here in Australia on AI and ethics? Um, look, look. I, I think there have been some, some very big global stories that have put the fear into everyone, indeed, yes. um, <laughs> in, into the public, into other, you know, into CIOs, into boards, into executives. Um, you know, you know. But my view is actually, um, whilst whilst the risk certainly exists, is, is actually looking at those risks, um, looking at the AI ethics principles um, that that have been provided by the Australian government, and they only principles at this point in time. 
but at least using those. Yeah, they're, they're uh, not binding, guide, are they? They're not binding. But, but, but they're not binding, no. um, but, but they do help guide your thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've also got, um, uh, particularly for for, for, our, for for companies like like ours uh, who have offices around the globe, uh, GDPR, uh, and in Australia we've got NDB as well. Uh, and those are indeed binding. So, you know, it, it is about um, looking at those very carefully, becoming quite familiar with them. Mm. But, but I guess, the, the, to me, the opportunity is still there. It's, it's not about becoming frozen and paralysed because of the fear. Yes. It's actually looking at each of the risks and, and then thinking how you might mitigate them, working with your in-house legal teams, if you've got privacy specialists as well, your IP teams and your product owners to think about how to, how to best work through that. And really, the opportunity is there then to get ahead of the rest of the crowd um, who, who might still be navel-gazing. It sort of reminds me of cloud. Yes. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everyone said, you can't do it. it, it, it it's just too insecure. Uh, it, it's not a route that would work. And, you know, again, the approach uh, that, that we started looking at about eight years ago, particularly when some of those big providers came into Australia and data was then going to be local, is, but what are the actual risks? Let's, let's get rid of the hype. And, and figure out what the risks are and how we might work work around them and put mitigating circumstances in place. It's exactly the same, I think, where, where data and ethics is today. Mm. You can work through it. Well, I think that's some very sound and practical advice. Gary, thanks so much for, being, for making the time and we look forward to having you on the show again sometime soon. My pleasure. Thank you. So thanks for joining us on this our first episode of the CIO Show. We hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the first of our two-part series on artificial intelligence. In the next, we'll bring you some more interesting perspectives, including on how evolution might help us recalibrate our understanding and expectations of AI, and how a leading Australian hospital is applying it to improve patient care and its response to COVID-19. We'll find out what the CSIRO's Data61 is up to with AI, and we'll also get an update on a very important missing persons case. We hope you can join us. Thank you.